This episode of Sustainability Solved is brought to you in association with Business Declares, bringing business leaders together to show support for action on climate and nature. Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Solved, the sustainable business podcast. I'm Will Richardson, and I'm the founder and CEO of Green Element Group, incorporating Green Element, Compare Your Footprint, and of course, Sustainability Solved. We've been empowering organisations to manage their environmental impacts for a just and sustainable world since 2004. Two of the most pressing concerns of our generation are housing and the climate crisis. And in the UK in particular, our housing stock is in desperate need of modernisation and improved insulation. But this problem isn't limited to the UK. We need affordable housing that is better for the environment and more affordable to run. But how do we get there? Today, we meet two people taking very different approaches to sustainable housing. Carl Gish is from Arrow Homes, who are a US startup looking to replace existing dilapidated housing stock with new energy efficient homes built off-site to passive house standards. Marianne Bailey is an architect, author and board director of UK Passive House Trust. She has written about residential retrofits and as a partner of Studio PDP, she worked on Princedale Road, the first Victorian residential retrofit in the UK to be certified in the Passive House standard. And for our international listeners, Victorian houses were built around about the early 1900s is that right Marin? even before <laughs> even before okay cool carl and Marin, thank you so much for joining us i'm interested to hear about both your different approaches to sustainable housing first of all can i ask you both to give us the case for creating a more sustainable housing your way Marin, maybe we'll start with you well i mean with my expertise in um, retrofit uh, hat on i suppose I would say that the most important thing is really to make the most of the stock that already exists. And there is quite a long way to go to make the, you know, our existing homes fit for the future. So this is this is obviously where I would start in short. Carl. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I may not jump right into the controversial side because I think both are necessary. Um, at least in the United States, there's housing stock that wasn't built 100 years ago, that, but it was built 60, 50 years ago. And it's just not very good housing stock. And the cost of retrofitting would be probably greater than to do it well than it would be to start from scratch. Um, so from my perspective, both, both are appropriate in different circumstances. Marion, can you tell us why you think retrofitting is important? So first of all, you know, we, we have 27 million dwellings in the UK, for example. 20% of the stock is Victorian, which is single glazed mostly with solid brick wall, which is vastly inefficient. When I say vastly, is you know, maybe five times worse than what you're talking about, Carl. <laughs> so uh, there's, quite, there's quite a lot of um, kind of impact to be had by addressing the performance of these buildings, this housing stock. And then there is also obviously the cavity wall constructions that need to be retrofitted, which are not always filled with insulation. 
So that sort of post-1920s housing stock in the UK also needs to be addressed. And as you're saying, Carl, I'm working at the moment on uh, 300 units which have been built 12 years ago, which are underperforming to the standard that they were designed to be achieving, not even the, you know, the standard that we should achieve today. <laughs> so I'm retrofitting that right there. <laughs> so, you know, we need to make it, uh, I mean, th- we, we need to address the inefficiency, but more, more importantly, the reason why we need to address this inefficiency is because we need to move away from fossil fuel. And at the moment, 87% of the housing stock is, late, is heated uh, via the gas network. So we've got to decarbonize that space heating, as we call it. So the first thing is to reduce the demand and then electrify. This is what we need to do for to address the, you know, the climate change emergency uh, that we are all facing. So this is the key reason is keep people comfortable and um, at the same time address the issue of um, obviously climate breakdown. That's great. Thank you. No, it's brilliant. And Carl, what are the merits of creating new sustainable housing? I think there are many fold. First off, you obviously don't have to deal with the constraints, if you will, of an existing structure and replacing whether it's insulation or adding more walls or ripping out the HVAC system, the heating system, etc. And that's the approach we've taken. We've said, look, in the United States, there's about five to six million, depending on the year, new homes built a year. And we have a, depending on who you speak with, a shortage of homes, uh, about five or six million. On top of in the UK, the twenty-seven—I think you said, uh, Brian, twenty-seven million homes. In the US, it's eighty-six million single-family homes, and the average age of those is something like forty-three years, forty-two years. So th- there's clearly a need. We're building new homes. I would posit that the new homes we're building should be as environmentally sound as they can be. That twenty-three percent of global carbon emissions come from single-family homes was a a data point that I wasn't aware of until I got started getting involved in this business a few years ago. And it sort of blew my mind, frankly, because mm-hmm. I would never have put single family homes. If you'd given me a, hey, stack rank the things that are messing up the environment and creating the most pollution, I wouldn't have put single family homes. It just, yeah. just we don't think about it that way. At least I don't. And so the scale of, of the problem is, is just massive and not super visible because these things are just houses that we drive by every day. And we don't see the emissions coming out of them. In the U.S., still new homes, about only less than half are being built with heat pumps, which is vastly more efficient. The kind of insulation, the kind of envelope, just things that if you set out to build an environmentally sound home, you would do, just aren't done today. It still blows my mind that in in this, especially this year with all the stuff going on around fires and disasters and everything else, we're still building it the same old way. Um, and I think that ha- that's the case in most countries, frankly. So I guess my position, if you will, if I had to take one, is that there's really no excuse for us to be building homes that are so deficient anymore. The technology's there. Sure, they may cost a little more, but if you do them right, they'll end up paying for themselves within years. The first homes we're building actually get to net zero. So they offset the full embodied carbon of building the home after 16 years i'm going to ask you i'm going to be asking more questions around that a bit later on yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it's it's doable 
and we need to we need to do more of it is sort of my position and carl you come at housing from a quite a unique angle of brand and marketing can you tell us how or why you moved from working for names like dyson and amazon to then into building homes so my my background my passion is really about building products. Um, I actually started my career at Unilever, which is um, was an Anglo-Dutch company, and building things that touch people's lives. Uh, for whatever reason, that's that's what that was my passion in early on in my business career, and it, it remains it. And frankly, there's nothing uh, more important in terms of product than the home that somebody lives in, if you think about it. It's the biggest, most expensive, most important product we'll ever use. And I would argue, based on my experience working for people like James Dyson and Unilever and Amazon, that the the thoughtfulness, the design deliberateness that goes into building homes is inferior to anything we do in any other product we buy. And it's kind of silly thinking about it that way. Brilliant. And Marin, your path to sustainable housing is more linear. You've been the board director of Passive House since 2016. But what was it that ignited your interest in greening up our housing stock? Well, I mean, a little bit like Carl, I suppose I started, um, you know, going to sites in my early career and realizing the poor standard of material installation on site. And, you know, when I had to explain to a contractor that if I could put my arm through two pieces of insulation boards that wasn't going to be airtight or efficient. (laughs) And I just thought there must be a better way of of building this is just complete nonsense and I I just didn't really know who had thought a bit more holistically at this topic so I decided to retrain and go back to university and do a master's degree in sustainable architecture and design and I came across the passive house standard during that course and that was a complete revelation I was just absolutely blown away by the robustness of the standard and the you know it just made absolute sense and then I thought why would anybody want to build any different? I mean, it's it's got a method, it's got a software, it's got a quality assurance process. It does what it says on the tin. It's just amazing. It's just, uh, you know, and, it, and it, it costs nothing to run. So since then, I did a retrofit of my house to the NFIT Passive House Standard and and I've been lobbying for the standard ever since. So this is this is really what, you know, what inspired me, I thought it was absolutely fantastic, to be honest with you. I, I just, I saw it not as something difficult and complicated to do, but something really inspiring and exciting. So here's a question for you both. Do you have to be an architect to build sustainable housing, coming at it from both of your different backgrounds? Well, I, I, I would turn the, the, the question the other way. It's like, who else would build houses other than people who are in construction industry? I mean, you're you're talking about self-built builders, or are you talking about? Well, I'm just interested to ask you both because you're both coming at and interestingly the passive house angle as well. You're both saying that passive house standard is very very good, but then both of you aren't architects. So, do you have to be an architect to be building these sustainable houses? Uh, well. I think you need to have a basic knowledge of construction and detailing. I mean, it does demand quite a lot of attention and and and, and precision to apply, you know, an efficient building, especially with the airtightness, which is, you know, the warrant of your success uh, to some extent for a very low energy house. So 
So I would I would say not necessarily an architect, but somebody well trained for sure. I'm going to go one further. Not being an architect, I'm going to say absolutely. There's no way I would go near a a, a drafting table or a we use on shape a 3D model and we obviously start with sketching to design our home. I I don't. Let's be very clear. I don't design the home and and I did try to get a little too involved and my. Uh, my head architect uh, decided to help me understand that what my role was, but um, we have world-class architect building. We haven't named them, but when we do, say, Oh, we know of them because architects who are the experts in design and building. And one of our, one of our positions is that you can build amazingly livable, durable, enjoyable houses and be passive house or better uh, in terms of their environmental and energy efficiency performance. It's not, it doesn't have to be a trade-off. Yes, there will be some constraints. There's some things that you, you know, it's, if you will, it's an equation with lots of variables and, and it's not just completely open, but if you're deliberate, working with smart, passionate people, which we are, it sounds like Marianne is as well, you can solve these problems. Famously, there's certain people in the U.S. who are talking about building housing on Mars. So if we're actually working on that today, um, and it's probably possible, but we're sitting here building homes without insulation or leaky with burning fossil fuels in my attic. I have not retrofitted my home yet, but I do have solar. But literally, it's sort of, like I said, it sort of blows your mind when you, for me anyway, when you step back and look at it and, and put it in context. Good, good. I just what I wanted to do is level that playing field and um, just recognise that both of you are actually coming at it from the same place. And although you've got different backgrounds, you're actually trying to solve the same problem in a similar way. And I think this is what so what excites me so much about talking to you. So my next question to you, Carl, is. You're using machine learning to identify potential plots that have energy efficiency potential. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we we are using sort of large data models to identify properties that we think are particularly well suited to to our design. So one of the things that's a little unique about us is we, we own the process end to end because we studied the industry, we studied everybody who had come before us, what had gone well and what had gone less well, whether that's about automation or the business models or what have you. And one of the things we decided to do was not customization, which is for some people, particularly in the design and architecture space, less less interesting, right? Because it's all about a, a unique design. Well, we found that really you get a massive efficiencies if the design doesn't change every single time. So we have a very, a very common design, but a, but a brilliant design for, for, the, for the first home. And we'll repeat that over and over again. And so what we've done is used data science, data modeling to ingest all the data that we could that's out there. So there's tax assessor data that actually has all those plot lines that show exactly what a, a small plot in California, you know, its dimensions, its, its um, orientation, et cetera along with all the MLS data, which is, which is, I'm not sure if you guys have MLS in the UK, but it's basically all the real estate data, all the history of the home, all the appliances, the envelope, the footprint, et cetera, et cetera, sale history, what have you. 
So there's all this data, public sources and otherwise that we that we ingest, and then we say, hey, based on our criteria, let's build a, an algorithm, if you will, that tells us which properties are best suited for our home design. So we end up going out and buying. The traditional process is, if you're going to rebuild a, an old end of life home, buy a lot, design a home, permit the home, build the home. We invert that. So we can build the home because we're doing most of the construction offsite before we even bought the lot. So we actually buy lots that fit our home as opposed to the other, other way around. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. Yes, very unusual. <laughs> yes, time will tell, but we think it's, again, we try to learn from the things that, you know, other people's mistakes, we like to say. It's like, let, let's not remake mistakes other people have made. It's fine to make original mistakes, but um, for not to do that too much either, but certainly not mistakes that other people have made. That just doesn't make sense. How does technology play a part in planning and surveying your retrofit projects, Marion? And what are you doing now that you couldn't do 10 years ago? Um, so, I mean, in retrofit, there, there's been a, a couple of key changes, I suppose. One is um, just to piggyback a little bit on the kind of MMC uh, type of construction. There is something called energy sprung, which is probably the closest to kind of prefabricated elements to retrofit existing stocks. So it's worth mentioning that there is a little bit of inroads from some for, uh, from some about um, applying that technology to the existing stock. But the key things that have changed since I started on the retrofit journey 10 years ago is the combustibility of materials. So since Grenfell, obviously, now this is a straight no-no. So that means that we need to uh, work with uh, vapor-open materials as opposed to closed-cell type of foam boards and that sort of thing. So we're working more and more with uh, more natural material as well, which helps on the embodied carbon uh, whole life cycle aspect of the project as well. So that that's changed. And the other thing that's changed is some technological advances, in particular in London, in conservation area, it's very difficult to change uh, windows for a standard double glazing. Uh, that's not possible. So it's there is a new products on the market that are vacuum glass panels, which are double glazing, but extremely thin. They're only about six or seven millimeter overall, but they perform like a triple glazing. And for me, this is a game changer for conservation area in the historic context. So. I'd like to see more of these. Um, the the other technologies that we apply is the aerosol seat pump, MVHR. They haven't really changed in the last 10 years, in all honesty. The key, I would say, the key thing that I'd like the industry to focus on is user controls. This is still something that is not well thought through, especially when you have several pieces of equipment, such as aerosol seat pump, MVHRs, and, and other things. You have lots of different controls that operates differently and are most often impenetrable. <laughs> so so a few ideas of what works and, and a few on, on what I, I think needs a little bit more work. Lovely, brilliant. And I'm interested to know about the difference in timescales between retrofitting and factory building homes. Uh, Marion, I imagine retrofitting is not a quick process. <laughs> so aside from getting planning permission, how long does that um, process take, please? So not all retrofit need planning so obviously if you do the work internally you don't need planning you need planning for um extensions or buildings and conservation area 
But there's some areas where you can install an external wall insulation without uh, under uh, permitted development. So you don't need planning permission and changing your windows the same as long as you're not in a conservation area. So there's a lot that you can do without planning. In, in terms of the length of the retrofit, it's entirely depending on the, on the sort of strategy that the architect or the retrofit coordinator will adopt. And uh, the finances available and the practicalities of the retrofit. So it can be anything and everything. You know, you can replace a window and, and call it a step-by-step -step retrofit. And that's a step number one, where you just replace one window. Then a year after, you can afford another one. And then you can afford a ventilation system and then the insulation, etc. So, you know, so it's, it's expandable depending on, on means and uh, practical aspects and locations and constraints. And Carl? Yeah, we... Um... We have our, our approach has the benefit of um, being able to be much much quicker than traditional construction uh, for a bunch of reasons. So our goal is to get from when we can close on or, or own an old property, end of life home that you know literally is either will require massive renovation or is better to be replaced to having a certificate of occupancy, being able to sell to a new family within 90 days. Right. right now we have line of sight. We think our fourth home that we're, that we're just about to start building, we'll get to 150 days. And so our, our goal, longer term, probably take a couple of years to get there, is 90 days. And now I'll be very clear, that's in jurisdictions that do not have a design wow. review. Because as soon as you add design review, as I'm sure Marion knows, and you get a bunch of people uh weighing in Thank on design, design panels as well so don't create <laughs> yes design, yes the, the review panels that are open to public comment it, it just everything goes out the window right because so anyway literally i've heard this well that eve i'm not sure i like the eve of that design it's like what we're talking i mean it's yeah it's a little crazy so we're very focused on jurisdictions that do not have that they, they have very clear and very rigorous design codes things thou shalt and or shall and shalt not do. And we adhere to those. But again, though, our design, we start out by saying, hey, what does all that code say? What does all that municipal and design and energy and public works code say? And we actually designed our home to meet those things up front. So we literally, and the other advantage is, so we can kind of, it's, it almost sounds like cheating as I'm saying this, but because the, the home is built off site as much as we can, it's not subject to local inspection and permitting. It's inspected and permitted at the state level. And that state inspection and permitting supersedes any local jurisdiction vis-a-vis -vis building, not, not public works connections, i.e. fire, water, et cetera, not landscaping, not the zoning, but the actual building code itself. So that, that makes it way more efficient for us to be able to, to build in a consistent, almost like a product, like a, like a car or a Dyson vacuum or whatever else that we're doing the same thing over and over again and getting better and better at it and being able to be very efficient using lean manufacturing, one thing and another to, uh, to, to drive efficiencies into this process. In the U S it takes at least 18 months generally for a new home to be built in what I'll call what we call infill, i.e. replacing homes that already exist uh, 18 months. So if we can get it down to 90, 120 days, that'll be a, yeah. 
significant, significant savings. And do you demolish old houses when you find the plots or are they usually empty? Yes. Yes. And uh, we are very, um, we, we care about not wasting things. So first thing we do is we, when we look buy a house, we say, look, is this house, is it, is it appropriate to replace it? Does it, is it, is it a livable house with a little bit of investment? Could it be made more modernized? And the reality is the market will do that as well. People, there's so much demand here. People decide, oh, I'm will I could live in this house. I'm willing to pay X for it. So we're generally yeah. looking at homes that really are what we call end of life, sort of they're, they're, they're truly dilapidated. They need massive work. And so what we do then is we salvage as much as we can. Things like single pane windows yeah. that are 60 years old are not particularly salvageable. They're, they're not useful and they wouldn't help when they get put into another home. But things like cabinetry and plumbing equipment, and you'd be surprised at what people reuse. So as much of that, we just, we literally give it away get salvage crews to come in and, and take and reuse. And then whatever's left, we will, what we call scraping the lot. So you get a big old bulldozer and run it down. Is that mostly timber construction or solid masonry? It is mostly uh, timber, timber drywall. Unlike the UK, where I know there's a lot of brick uh, and masonry, our buildings are not like that. You're probably looking at New Zealand as well, aren't you? Because you're the same type of houses of New Zealand as well as the US and Australia to a degree as well, I would imagine. We think uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of regions in the world. Right now, we're we're solely focused on California. Right. We're proving out our model, right. uh, and then our intent is to expand in the US, other other regions in the US, and then <laughs> it, I haven't started thinking about outside the US, but it would, we think it's absolutely applicable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, that's interesting. If you don't mind me uh, uh, making a, a little point, Will, on the um, demolition versus rebuild uh, dilemma that we have in the UK. And I don't know if you know, Carl, but there's a huge sort of press commentaries on a particular building in Oxford Street, uh, which is uh, the subject to demolition or not. But the, the arguments are usually, you know, the embodied carbon that it contains. But because your construction that you're demolishing are made of regenerative material, which timber is, it totally changes the, um, you know, the argument of can you demolish or not. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting spin. I presume your new constructions are also made of timber or not masonry? vast majority is timber. Um... We're looking at alternative materials but because of embedded embodied carbon uh embedded carbon timber is obviously a a, a great thing to build with um given its uh its impact it's a big subject over here this episode of sustainability solves is brought to you by business declares a not-for-profit business network of over 100 businesses working together for a sustainable future. I'm really pleased to be able to join forces with Business Declares for this podcast, as they are a cause close to my heart, and I already volunteer to them offering advice, attending group meetings, and helping set up and promote events, like the recent queue. I would encourage you to join as a member today so you can get help accelerating your action on net zero and nature targets for your business and grow your network of forward-thinking green business leaders.
You can find out more information about upcoming events and how you apply to join at businessdeclares.com. Carl, you say the average annual net emissions of Arrow Homes is minus 0.3 tonnes. Where did you get this figure from and how have you come up with this figure when you're still working and building your first one? So we are very deliberate and rigorous about any claims we're making. Um, I personally have um, a... I won't say concern, but I, I feel like there's a lot of noise. Um, some people call it greenwashing about some of these certifications and how green things are or not. And I'm no expert to be very clear. And so I need to keep it really simple. And so for me, it's how much embedded carbon and body carbon is, is in a, is something you build and that should go all the way up and down the supply chain, right? Let's be honest, if you will, about what actually goes into building a home. Um, and then there's how efficient is the home? What is its envelope? What is its HERS rating? How, how does, how much ingress or egress of, of air and the atmosphere, how, how insulated is it? There's that component. Then there's the, Hey, how much energy is actually used in the home from the systems? And that's going to differ by, from family to family. Some family take 10 minute hot showers, everybody all day long. Right. And other people are don't right and so there's some variability there and so there's the energy usage which again you can model and we do and then there's the third component which is hey how much energy can you uh generate based on a pv system and batteries smart energy management etc and so when we look at all of those things with a goal of ultimately the goal we're trying to do is how do we start by using as little energy as possible in the home with systems and envelope insulation and then hey how do we offset energy any the energy that is being used with an efficient pv system and battery storage um battery storage is important frankly because we could claim and we could put a lot of solar panels on the roof and say oh look it generates all this all this energy um but if we're not actually using that energy at peak hours, which is the dirtiest produced energy in the United States, um, then we actually wouldn't be doing as much as we could. Um, so long-winded answer to your question, but we, we use third parties to help us with some of this analysis, the embedded carbon analysis, the LCA analysis, the energy efficiency uh, of the home based on standard measurements. And I'd say, as I mentioned, the first home we build, the latest calculations using the final solar array, the energy system, the expected usage, we're at about 16 years to net zero. And Marin, you, you may be familiar with some of this. I haven't been able to find a ton of data on residential housing of how many oh. homes are actually built that are truly net zero. Like how long does it take to get there? There just isn't a lot of good data. I did read about a home in Sweden that was called Villa Zero. Uh, and they got to net zero after 10 years. I, I don't know how they, you know, who or what body said, Hey, 10 years is the, is the benchmark, but they're claiming, Hey, we're a zero carbon house because we get there in 10 years. And that's the only one I could find that had some, some real substantiation. So mm. the picture is probably worse than we probably assume in terms of how, how much embodied carbon there is in the homes that we're building. 
And personally, we believe that the more visibility, the more transparency there is, the better. Because uh, we can all be working on this and, and different industries, different aspects of it. And it's important we do. Because if we're not actually starting with what's actually the data, like what what is the impact of a home, then we're kind of bumping around in the dark if, if, from from my perspective. Yeah, if I if I can just uh, answer this, uh, Will, if you don't mind, there is there is some definition of net zero in the UK by uh, the Letty uh, guidance in particular, and the UK Green Building Council as well. Uh, so so it's pretty well understood, but obviously not everyone plays by exactly the same operational energy demand as each other so i've got several clients who've set their energy use intensity as we call it to different targets and therefore their definition of net zero is concluded slightly differently to remedy to this discrepancy between calculations the uk is in the process of creating a building standard uh, for net zero, the, the UK net zero carbon building standards, that's what it's going to be called. And, and we'll aim to, um, yes, to, to align everybody and all sectors as well and retrofit as well. So hopefully that should help. But it also depends on the, the speed of decarbonization of your electricity grid. Uh, so obviously, you know, if you are 100% relying on electricity in your in your building, you can call yourself zero net zero carbon once the grid is 100% decarbonized. So that also will play a role as well as the embodied carbon. So so it, it will vary per country for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I liken it to um, what you're looking at the life cycle analysis of vehicles uh, in Europe. It's lower than in say the US, where you've got a heavier um, reliance on fossil fuels. Yeah, not surprising. And, and I agree with Marion. It makes sense to have a, a common, well, well-defined standard and remove sort of some of the, I won't call them games, but the, um, the machinations that happen around, yeah, interpretations and, and claims and everything else. It, uh, my sense is it should be pretty binary, either it is or isn't. Marion, you recently went back to visit the homes you wrote about about 10 years ago in a book. I know you can't reveal too much, but can you tell us a bit about what you discovered and how they fared? So, yeah, so just to kind of explain a little bit, um, 10 years ago, the government wanted to illustrate how to reduce CO2 emission by 80% for residential housing stock in the UK. And they've invested um, 15 million pounds to retrofit 100 houses. So that was absolutely phenomenal learning curve for the whole industry and it produced some fantastic examples so i took 20 of these 100 retrofits and i wrote a book illustrating to everyone depending on you know the construction type of your house what you could do with it to bring it to 80 percent carbon reduction so at the time the focus was to reduce carbon um carbon emission by re reducing the gas demand to minimum now the shift is to electrify space heating, so it's slightly different, but nevertheless, to look at these build these um, these properties again, or ten of them, ten years later, 
is really helpful to understand in terms of fabric efficiency terms, what has worked and what hasn't worked. Because a lot of people might say, oh, you're putting these air tightness tapes. How do I know in 10 years whether they will work or not? Well, now we do know. So we've retested all these houses that got tested 10 years ago. And we can say that the air tightness has totally remained. The fabric uh, has really performed quite outstandingly or let's say, continuously well throughout the 10 years. There isn't any change. So our conclusion are relatively sort of uneventful, which is exactly what we were trying to see. The main issues is around maintenance of the building fabric, as all building would go through, and that creates issues. And uh, the maintenance of complicated services and also uh, the management of difficult controls, which I mentioned earlier on. Um, so... Uh, these are the key key aspects. There is some issues around windows and door seals uh, that have given after 10 years. And so the air tightness has, uh, in, you know, worsened a tiny bit, but it's, it's really marginal when you look at a, an air tightness of 15, maybe in some properties it's gone from one till three, which is still excellent on in construction terms. So, yeah, that's this kind of... Um, what we are looking at at the moment, but uh, it's really exciting to see, you know, 10 years later, what has happened. That's brilliant. That is really, really good. Sounds really, really encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And is retrofitting, does it cost way more than what Carl's doing? You know, like, how do they, how does it, how, like, how does it stack up? If I was listening to this podcast and I was going, you know what, well, I really want to be more environmental. Should I retrofit? Or is that a really stupid question, basically? <laughs> so, I mean, again, it really depends on your, your construction. For example, if you have cavity walls and you haven't, and you already have double glazing, you just need to top up the roof insulation and, and insulate the cavities if they're not already done. And, and, uh, and then, you know, you can change your gas boiler for an SS heat pump pretty pretty easily. Uh, if you have a Victorian building, it's much, much more difficult and therefore much more expensive. So it, it depends on the nature of your building or your starting point. So there, there isn't one rule for And also, obviously, you could do step by step. So you could do, you know, just the windows first and then the rest, etc. So you could spread it in time. Brilliant. Okay, that's cool. I don't know per square meter how, how much the, for example, the 20 case studies that I've looked at um, compare with Carl's, um, Carl's uh, cost. Yeah, but that would be interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I 100% agree with what you're saying, Marianne. And, and it's, I think we're facing a similar challenge in the UK, just retrofitting gas boilers, or as you call them, we call them furnaces, but gas and oil for heat pumps, which there is incentives to do so. Um, they are factors more effective and efficient and, and not using as much, you know, fossil fuels. A lot of our utilities are still fossil fuel here, but way more efficient and people aren't doing it. So it's partly, it's, I think part of the challenge is just human behavior. Um, and so we take that out of the equation, frankly, um, in our, and, and as I said earlier, but I, I believe both are absolutely necessary because we're not going to tear down all these beautiful Victorian homes that are made of, you know, masonry, but, and they do need to be made more efficient in the U S though, our, uh, there's 
and I assume it's the same, get, getting a tradesperson to come out to a, a building and the commuting time and the setup time and just the inefficiency of doing that work in an existing building and retrofitting it versus doing it from scratch and off site. So our labor costs, because we have a plant in Sacramento uh, where the wages are just lower than they are in where we're building the homes in, in more expensive urban areas. I mean, it's just way more efficient to, to do it the way we're doing it. Um, there's an adage in the U.S. that every every single family home is a prototype. <clears throat> and you can maybe relate to this, Marion, from an architecture perspective. And it's kind of true. And for me, as a, as a ultimately as a product person, that kind of blows me away. It's sort of like, wait. There's 86 million of them, and we did that. Every single one was basically a prototype, except for the row homes they did in the 50s. And and it is. It's sort of Groundhog Day every day. It's like there's people putting wood walls up with hammers and nails and lifting them up and attaching everything. And it's just it's it's the biggest industry that hasn't really changed in 50, 70 years, um, at least here. And so there's just so much opportunity, frankly. Yeah, I can imagine. They should come and have a look at the Victorian terraced houses. There's millions of houses looking exactly the same. <laughs> I know. I, I spent some time in England. And I have family there, and so I, I'm familiar with it. And and it's it's charming. It's 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 lovely. It's it doesn't have to be. Yeah. So humans. I know. I mean, interestingly enough, Chris Tark, who's the CEO of the Committee of Climate Change in the UK, says that the number one issue to overcome for retrofit to happen isn't money isn't the technology isn't the details or the skills it's the willingness of the individual homeowners to go through disruption within their home and that is absolutely true i think and so it's how you motivate people to go through i mean i don't know if you've done a significant retrofit in your property but you know you can't really live in it during the if you're doing anything yeah. significant. And, and then how do you sell this to people? You know, fancy moving out of your house for six months. Yeah. Uh, it's not very attractive. So I think it's, it's no. uh, I mean, obviously, that's for a deep retrofit. You, you, it's not always the case. And I know many people who've lived in their properties, the entire retrofit. In fact, out of the book, I think there's maybe a handful that where the tenants had to leave outside the property. Uh, but this, the disruption is definitely a key factor that people forget when we're talking about retrofits. How, how do you make this attractive? Yeah. No, and it occurs to me, my, I'm going to the, hey, a lot of these Victorian homes are very similar. They had windows that were all produced identically or whatever. I wonder where if there wasn't an opportunity for bringing some technology and some productization to the retrofit market in the U.K., where you could literally have window kits, door kits, installation kits that could be pre-configured in such a way that, you know, again, I'm not an architect or a, or a, you know, construction person per se. And of course there's the reality of, yes, you still have to take the casing out of the concrete setting and it's that non-trivial. I know all those things. And it's like, man, I wonder if there's a better way. Yeah, I mean, the complexity also is the fact that it's um, you don't have a single owner for the entire street. If that was the case, it, right. you, it would be easier to implement a, a street retrofit. But in terms of kind of technology that's helping making a retrofit faster, for example, there is one example in my book where somebody has developed a 
a sort of scan of the space so that they could dimension the external walls very quickly and then prefabricate the insulation boards off-site and just come and in one day fit all the insulation to all the external walls but internally and Bob's your uncle. So, you know, that I, I haven't been back to that property, I have to say. I'd love to see how it performs today. Yeah, there is ideas along those lines to make retrofit faster. Carl, I noticed Arrowhomes um, plan to use Hydroloop technology in your builds. Um, it recycles 85% of the water in your home. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I thought that was really interesting because it's something that I thought we in the UK could possibly put in to our homes as well. Yeah, so our first home, it's, it's actually going to be um, pre-plumbed and wired for the Hydroloop, but it, it actually won't be in the building. And so that's one of the things we're thinking about doing is sort of making the home sort of Hydroloop ready or battery ready for a couple of reasons. One is it's expensive for us to put all this kit in not knowing whether the eventual homeowner is going to be willing to pay for it or wants it. But the Hydroloop is really interesting because in, in, as, as you are probably very aware, California, we've had and continue to have issues with, with drought and, and water and um, gray water or reclaimed water from, um, from things like the sinks and washing machine and dishwasher and what have you is absolutely can be made literally to potable levels, but for use in irrigation or plumbing, toilets, etc., cetera, um, just makes perfect sense. Um, I don't uh, think it's, I know it's not mainstream yet here. Um, people, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively uncommon, right? It's new and it's different. So the adoption curve, we're, we're early on in the adoption curve. And I think it's something, it's technology that we will, that will, over the coming years become sort of the norm, right? Just there's so much water we just waste, literally just down the drain that is reusable. I live in a property where you potentially could put a Hydroloop in because it's a bungalow with a cavity underneath. So all the pipes are accessible all the way underneath the whole house. So when we retrofitted the house, mm. it was really interesting to see the builders literally climb down hatches and go underneath the house and do all the wiring and everything and then come back up again. <laughs> yeah no that sounds like it would be well well suited to it uh, we have the advantage uh because we're doing it's not it's not we don't really call it modular because we it's really more volumetric we designed a home with great architects and designers and and systems engineers to be a, a, a very livable environmentally friendly home environmentally efficient home and then we said okay how could we build as much of this as we can off-site and then transport it to the eventual location? And so it's a lot of prefab or modular builders today that sort of have um, a set of units, if you will, or a set of um, components that, that can go together in, a, in several different ways. Ours is, 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 is quite different in that regard. It only goes together in one way. In one very precise way, because we basically disaggregated the home and then re, re put it back together, if you will, um, on site. Marion, do you think you could use something like Hydroloop in the UK? Or yeah, I mean, they, I've heard of a similar system, not called quite like this, for hotels, uh, which are obviously extremely wasteful in water. And there is some system that are uh, used in showers also for for using the heat 
of the hot water from showers to toward as a contribution towards the space heating. Otherwise, you're literally, you know, throwing away hot water um, in the drains. So there is a few system. So far, to my experience, the cost has been prohibitive for our clients to actually install it. But it, it makes sense. And I think, you know, the sense of priorities on water resources is getting, you know, to the front of the agenda more and more. So I think people might think twice, you know, about um, not putting one in. <laughs> and they might therefore put one in. Uh, yeah. So, so yes, I think that the topic of water is is one that hasn't quite. Uh, I mean, it is obviously it has made its way to the UK regulations, etc. And but maybe not to the extent yet as the um, hydro loop systems um, could you know could bring benefits for the for the homeowner, but uh, in the future maybe. You've got a lot of engineers on your team at Arrow and you're trying to refine the process of building a home, would you like to ultimately export your ideas and processes to more traditional home builders, house builders? Yes, absolutely. We're actually already trying to do that uh, on some of the site work. When we bring the, the volumetric components of the home to a site, we're still working with very traditional how it's done today. And we are bringing lean manufacturing principles to that work, whether it's how you put in a foundation to how they do the cladding on the side of the house, all the components. And it's really eye-opening to see how inefficient or how much, because lean, is, I don't know what you know about lean manufacturing, but it's all about eliminating waste, wasted time, wasted material, non-value added things. And if you actually do time and motion studies, which we've done on some of this work, there's a lot of opportunity. So I'll, I'll start with that. And then the other thing I'd say is we're not, um, we're not splitting atoms here, right? What we're doing is we're building single family homes. Today in the US, stick they call them stick built because they are made of wood and they literally are <laughs> nailing sticks together, large sticks. If, if we can demonstrate a, a slightly more efficient, maybe a lot more efficient way to build houses, build structures that that works against the objective measures of cost, quality, environmental impact, et cetera, aesthetics. We think we could potentially influence other builders and the industry. And that, frankly, for us, because if we, if we become wildly successful, we build a thousand homes a year, which is sort of our five to seven year goal, we'll be a very large, successful company, and we will not be a drop in the bucket. As I mentioned, there's five or six million homes being built in the U.S. every year. A thousand is nothing. <laughs> so if we can influence yeah. or impact or somehow that other yeah. 4.99 million, that would be amazing. And so that is a big, a, a big ambition, and it's, yeah. it's something we'll do by showing it, right? That's the only way. If we're successful and other people see, hey, wait, what those guys are doing works, we should be looking at that. Then we'll, we'll all, everybody in the company, particularly the engineers, will will, will have a lot of um, satisfaction if, if we can help influence that. And I think we see this a lot of our clients at Green Elements where we've got fairly small, say, a financial, um, someone who works in the financial industry, but they are willing to open source 
the work that we've done with them to show the rest of you know the industry this is how you can actually do it this is about the finance emissions or you know in your case it's about um the kind of fa um fabric and i think sustainability has a very good culture with that where lots people are very open to this is how we've done it you hopefully you'll be able to do it better and people are willing to be you know to have that open conversation with others yeah, absolutely. That uh, we 100% agree with that. And and again, it goes back to the, the problem is so big, so universal. The opportunity is so big. Um, it would be um, well. I, I don't want to uh, qualify, but we think the the right thing to do is absolutely to be open source and share and learn and collaborate because there's so much opportunity. And frankly, collaborating. One of the things we're very excited about doing is collaborating with some of the systems the, the 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 schneiders of the world the mitsubishis of the world because one of the things we've seen at least in the us is and this may be true in the uk builders developers generally are averse to taking on risk trying new systems hydro loops heat pumps what have you because there's risk and they're because of just the, the economics the market forces they're not really incented to take that risk on right because it's very hard to get a return on either investment or risk. So if we can collaborate with with some of those companies who and, and partner with their R&Ds as being a willing partner to try new technologies and demonstrate them and, and publish the impacts. Again, coming from a product background, that, that to me is something that could be really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. On collaboration and publication and sharing and open source. Yeah. And I'd agree with you with the more historical stayed um, builders as well. They are quite slow to pick things up, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> well, they're not incented to do so, right? Well, they're not pushed to by our politics. You know, that's politically, exactly they're right. not pushed into it. They're not pushed to politically? And yeah. that's that's actually yeah. a crying shame. Yeah. And the market doesn't reward them, really. So why would you? Marion, so you think we're going to see retrofitting become more mainstream? Um, do you think it's something that homeowners rather than developers might invest in more? Or do you think we need to have that political input, you know, a cash injection for them, et cetera? So both. I mean, the thing is, wherever there's a financial opportunity, you'll see people rushing towards it. So uh, for sure, there is a lot more interest in retrofit than there used to be 10 years ago when I started to get interested in, in, in it. So yes, there's lots, lots of interest. We need absolutely many, much, much more policies uh, and incentives to drive retrofits. Um, there's many countries who are giving a lot more tax credit or other methods to, you know, incentivize people to carry out their retrofits. So we need that to make to, to make a big rollout. Yes, we're definitely a long way from, you know, mass retrofitting the country in the next five years as or you know by 2030 as we should really be doing um uh, so we we absolutely need to do it i mean you know, carl referred to the operation of homes to be responsible for about 26 or 28 percent i think you said of a global carbon emission but altogether the construction industry including processes is responsible for 40 percent so as a construction industry as a whole, we have an enormous responsibility. So 
Therefore, anything we build new needs to be made with regenerative material like cars, timber houses, and to super low energy, so certified power to pass. Um, and all the existing stuff needs to be decarbonized. So that's really the, ma the mandate that we need to absolutely implement and, and, and apply uh, as, as quickly as possible with hopefully more policies and interest and people trained. We're also lacking skills a lot and uh, we need to train trainers who could train trades. What Marion's just said, Carl, does that resonate with you in the US? Is it a, is it a similar picture? I, I, I won't speak for the US. <laughs> or California then. <laughs> Although sometimes I would like to, but I, I will speak for us at Arrow Homes and, and, and I 100% agree. And I can appreciate, and despite not being a, a builder or an architect per se, by 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 whatever trade, that the, the, the situation in the UK, particularly with the Victorian homes that are quite solid and quite old, just replacing those is not is not a viable solution. And so retrofitting is is essential. I can totally appreciate that. And I'd say, you know, to, to the point Mary made, degrees of retrofitting. So in the US, and I believe in the UK, well, I think you have a 5,000 pound rebate or something for putting in heat, heat pumps. We have the equivalent here in the US and people aren't doing it. Um, I was just looking at some data the other day that even in new home construction, I think I mentioned only about 40 something percent of new homes are being built with heat pumps. And some of that is geographic, but even in places like California where air-based heat pumps are perfectly appropriate, it doesn't, people are still doing it. Although in California now, government mandates, homes, homes we build are all electric. They have to be, new homes have to be all electric. There's no more gas. Um, and uh, maybe that is some of that is required. Um, Absolutely. And and I, I, I so I think it's a it's a it's a Marion's point. It's a it's a, a combination of, of solutions and approaches. Again, because the, the the situation didn't happen overnight. It's taken decades, centuries, even, and it's massive. Um, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of a lot of different solutions to get there. Brilliant. On that note. Thank you both very much for um, coming on the podcast and talking to us at Sustainability Solved. Um, if have you got any any questions or have you got anything to add um, to what you said already? No, I think you know if uh, if people um, listen to Carl and build only uh, as as he builds and uh, and and uh, the others retrofitted their houses. I think we'll, we'll be a, a long way here to making a huge difference for the industry. So, yes, I hope it inspires people to, to make a difference and that it's possible. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Very welcome. Thank you for having us. And that's it for this episode of Sustainability Solved, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Thank you to my guests, Carl Gish and Marion Bally. I'm Will Richardson at Green Elements. For more information on Green Elements and everything we've discussed today, please check the show notes. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can get in touch with us at Green Element on social media. And don't forget to follow this podcast in your favourite app and please do write us a review. Thank you so much and see you next month. <laughs>